Resporting episode two, and we've gone into isolation. Well, some of us have gone into isolation, but Brent and I haven't, but we are recording this from the socially acceptable one and a half metres away from each other. And we've additionally added in the element of alcohol, not hand sanitizer, but a little bit of beer and wine, just to make the experience that much better. Hello again, Brent. Good afternoon, Jen. I feel like I'm on the, the front bar now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is how all podcast recordings should be. It's very relaxed, I feel. It's very sporting. It's been a big week in sports, despite the fact that there's yep. no sport being played. And they're hashing out more what's going to happen in the rugby union, in the rugby league, in the AFL, in golf. All the big golfing events have been cancelled this yes. week. I think for me, it just gets stranger and stranger. The, the more length of time that there is without sport, I feel like the ideas just keep getting crazier and crazier. People are starting to throw out ideas that no one would have thought was possible before, like throwing sport onto an island and doing it that way. I don't know how that would work. I'm interested to see whether it would work. Norfolk Island. I can't figure out why it's something we don't really have a choice, do we, at the moment? This is the way it might have to be going forward. But do you make a decision and you make these ideas and turn them into a reality and then suddenly everyone's cured or the cure comes out and you you spend all this money doing this? Well, this is what I've been liking about the NRL this week because I do feel like they're at that stage where they're like, the season's going to start and we can see the starting date and we're starting to make preparations towards it. Where I feel some of the other sports are kind of still in that oh my God, let's just stop everything and panic and we don't know what to do. So I'm pleased for the NRL because I do feel there's some hope on the horizon. Although every time I watch the TV, there is a different Mike Hussey or Paul Gallen who (laughs) seemingly is half-dressed in their jammies with some headsets on recording from their bedroom, as you just said, some new theory about how we should play the game. This seems to be the the case. I think Fox Footy had Robert Dippadiamenico on. <laughs> Naturally, and, yeah, and he's literally he. I don't think he said he'd ever use Zoom or anything like that. And so he was learning during the interview, and he had his he had the the headphones in, and it was oh, it was it was quite funny. But you know, the the funniest thing about this week was when the NRL came out, and there was the potential. And I feel like <laughs> I sometimes it. these sources, maybe people are just talking to what's in their fridge, but. This is one of the things when they when they go, oh, NRL sources are saying that there was the potential that they could have wiped out the first couple of points for the, the first couple of games. Mm. And people people took to social media and they're having a laugh and saying, was it the Roosters board that came out and said this? <laughs> yeah. But it was also really funny to watch, like, obviously for the Raiders, but Parramatta and for Newcastle. I mean, yeah, Newcastle's Newcastle. like, God, no, 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 don't take this from us. There's actually been games that have been played. And if you are going to reset the season, I think one of the most uh, natural ideas or probably normal ideas that was thrown out was that we have a a 15 game season you play Mm. each team once and then you could probably have this a similar timeline this is if it starts in july you'd probably have a pretty similar timeline to what you would have had if there was a normal season yes so by saying 15 teams that's the other thing that came out this week is that to be able to do this as things are evolving it would mean that new zealand couldn't be part of this competition and they dealt with that remarkably graciously 
Yeah, and I think this is probably a reality with having the the cross-border, and this is probably the problem that we're seeing as well with uh, Sanzar and Super Rugby and what's going on there Mm. in terms of the difficulties of having to navigate a competition that's across four countries. Mm. So let alone the fact that this is just Australia and New Zealand and what's going on with the two different jurisdictions. It sort of raises difficulties going forward with, I know, the the A-League, but... There's also talk that Queensland as well could be a problem in all of this with what's happening with Palaget and creating a border pass and mm. what you need to, to go and travel to Queensland. I looked at going to the, the Gold Coast to visit my parents and no. you need to apply to get this pass and then you stay in the home for 14 days and I wouldn't want to be in paradise no. uh, for 14 days. But then on the other side of things, Townsville and areas around that have been largely unaffected by the coronavirus because it doesn't like the heat. This is the weird thing as well. I've got friends that are in the country and they go, when's it coming? Yeah. We haven't got, or we've got maybe one case and everyone in town knows who it is. And so <laughs> yeah, you just stay away right. from them <laughs> and they're not allowed out of their house. So what? maybe that's... Watch the, out for that, Billy. <laughs> the warmer climate, us here in Canberra, we're probably in a little bit of trouble. And I love all the different theories too about the isolation in hotel rooms. So it all be played in Sydney and all the non-Sydney teams get to stay in hotels. Well, I thought it would be like Big Brother. It'd be a little bit like you'd have all the teams. And maybe that's the revenue stream that the NRL could go for, is that they end up putting them all into houses. They get the advertisers on board, Deliveroo or whatever, Mm. and the players don't get to choose their dinner or something. But The really messy one has to live with a really clean one. Yeah, so normally who they would room with. I know Nick Kotrick, he's going a little bit crazy. He keeps posting up these training videos that he's doing or or he's trick-kicking, but... Maybe, I don't know, maybe pair Elliot Whitehead and Sia Soliola or something. This is the concept of if you've got players being away from their family as well, and Cameron Smith keeps beating this drum, and it was kind of like, well, Cameron, why didn't you just retire? Like, just, <laughs> you, oh, ha- you had the opportunity. Trouble. Well, that would be even more fun. Let's just say we were playing Melbourne, is pairing like <laughs> Nick Kotrick, and he has to live with Cameron Smith. Yeah, so so maybe each house has one player from each team. So there's 16 players living in each house. And you've got, like, Cameron teaching Nick how to knit and, you know. (laughs) Teaching you how to knit. I could imagine that. So so sadly can I. There was also the theory that they do two eight-team comps, but that was another one that's you so beautifully put it talking to the the, Just throw it on the back burner. I think at one point this week they were talking about Phil Gould possibly being the CEO of the National Rugby League. So first he wanted to be a player manager. Yep. So he's been this fantastic mm. coach, etc. Done magnificent things for the game. Mm. Also, some of the commentary that he does before Origin as well. You remember all, all yeah. the things that he does. And now... I feel like we're getting to that stage where this is what happens when there's no sport, people going crazy, and there's mm. no other outlet. People can't go to the pub, mm. so they can't kind of have their schnitties. They've got to make no. homemade schnitties and kind <laughs> of kind of beers. So I think this might be a lesson for everyone. What's going to happen once this all ends? Is everyone going to go to the pub? Maybe they have a magic round where all teams play, mm. or they have a battle royale, but... Maybe you take a couple of games to the the country. Yeah, well, I when's, love that. when's ANZ Stadium going to be ready? Has anyone mm. anyone thought about? I know the grand finals. If the NRL is going to to be done, it's going to be done at their SCG for the next couple of seasons. But 
we're now at this stage where we've got to look beyond that because if that doesn't happen this year, then you've probably got one more year to go on that contract. But if this whole virus situation isn't sorted, then it's looking really dire going forward. I can't imagine two years without sports. I can deal with one <laughs> seasons, but by season two, there's going to be a lot of people like me who'll be sitting in their jammies. You'll, you'll get like... I think uh, we'll have the covert teams playing and it'll be mm. it'll be put on the dark web or something. <laughs> they'll, right. they'll, they'll stream sport to the, the dark right. web. Yeah. And that'll and, be something that happens. And they'll all wear like face masks so no one knows who they are. Right. I just want to briefly touch on Rugby Union because I keep watching them and we're making light of all the different decisions that have been made in the NRL. But... Rugby unions just going from train wreck to train wreck. And one of their things this week was doing a massive international... I mean, you can't even leave the suburb at the moment. So the thought of having a massive international competition is just so far out of the realms of possibility. There's a lot of problems going on with rugby union at the moment, in particular the ARU situation with Raylene Castle and whether Mm. or not uh, Phil Kearns, of all people, is the man to take it forward that seems like vested interest uh, jobs for the boys if Mm. if anything and yeah this international competition you sort of have to laugh at it almost but where do you bring them from and if you were going to trial something like that you'd try and pick the best players from around the world and of course you'd take them to somewhere that's secluded but you can't get anywhere there's no planes that are really (laughs) operating at the moment all the major airlines are basically stood down their majority of their staff and are only operating if they really, really have to. Doesn't it feel like Groundhog Day? Imagine having Phil Gould, Phil Kearns. Could you imagine those two being the leaders of their competitions? I I absolutely couldn't. They're fantastic analysts of the game, but they are not the people that should be leading the code. And saw a hot take on social media that was Raylene Castle's actually doing a pretty good job for a competition that was already going to go under. And Todd Greenberg's a pretty poor CEO for a, a competition that was not bad. But I don't know how you could have a whack at any sort of CEO or no one woke up earlier in the year and thought there's going to be this virus Mm. that's going to take over the world and at some point you're not going to be able to leave your home, you're not going to be able to sit within one and a half metres of of Mm. people, your close friends, you won't be able to go to their house, you won't be able to have Sunday barbecue. So to think that this is going to have a major impact on competitions, it's almost wouldn't really have thought about it prior to it happening. No, I agree. That's sort of beyond conception. To come up on re-sporting, we have Eddie Williams, who's going to be talking AFL shortly. We're going to check in with Letsy, who's got the truckload going on in cricket. And we've got number four of our top five I'm excited. sporting moments of all time, Me Too. And did you re-watch yours this week? I did. Yeah, Me Too. I did. Probably about 20 times, actually. Yeah, well, mine is longer, so it was more... The savoring the whole experience. There you go. We'll be back in just a moment on Resporting. Eddie Williams has joined us for week two to talk AFL. It has been, again, without any actual AFL being played in reality, it's been still a big week in AFL. Eddie, hello. Jen, Brent, hello to you. 
Where do we start? Well, I guess we're starting to see some of those ideas, not quite NRL Island, but some of these ideas around conferences, <laughs> ideas around basing teams in three different groups in three different parts of Australia. And we're starting to see the creativity come to the fore when it comes to the AFL and its fans and its teams. And I must say the players don't seem to be all that keen on some of these more unusual ideas, but if that's what it takes to get the footy back, then perhaps that's what we'll end up with. What do you think's going to happen? Well, I don't know if this will happen, but there's an idea I've had that if we got to a stage where there was just an incredibly narrow window in which you could hold a season, only a few weeks, you could have a knockout tournament. You could have a five-week tournament. The teams that were ranked 15, 16, 17 and 18 at the end of round one, they'd play off like in qualifying, a bit like a tennis grand slam. And the two winners of those two matches have then joined the round of 16. You could seed the top four teams and you'd have the round of 16, the quarterfinals, the semifinal and the grand final. And it'd still take a pretty big effort for a team to, to win all the way through in that sort of format. I don't know if we will say that. I reckon it's not a bad idea. I think we might end up with some sort of conference system though, which I know Brent was a little bit reluctant about last week. I'm still reluctant, but I feel like that March Madness idea, that's similar to the, the concept that you're sort of going for. I mean, at this point in time with no sport actually going on at the moment, I'm kind of open to all ideas that would see sport come back in, in some sort of form. Really not a fan of this conference idea. I feel like if you're going to start a season off, you need to have it either with as many teams as possible. We see in, in certain competitions with New Zealand sides, it might not be possible. But because, I mean, this conference system is not going to work. You've got two teams in Perth. And then you've also got two teams in, in Queensland. Yeah, it's yeah. really dependent on, on different state government policies around their borders and quarantine and all these things. And It's know, a state we're issue. We're not going to see those lifted. Yeah, that's right. We're not going to see those lifted in the next few weeks or anything. But potentially maybe by June, July, there might be, be the possibility of some of these things going ahead. But you could have a, I mean, you could have two conferences. You could have what you'd call a, a Southwest Conference with the WA teams, the South Australian teams, and half of the Victorian teams, and you could have a, a Northeast conference with the other half of the Victorian teams, plus the Sydney teams and the two Queensland teams. So that, and that could reduce some of the travel and some of the, the burden that it would put on, on the clubs. You need a lead in time as well. You can't just have the season start when the players haven't been training. You've probably got to look at a few weeks of preparation as well. So there's only going to be a limited number of weeks if we do get a season that we'll be able to play it. Well, that's the big issue, I think, is one that I don't think a lot of people have really put a lot of thought into. They just want sport back is this whole lead-in time because, I mean, a lot of players, they're certainly not training mm. at the level they would be if they were in season at the moment. Some people have suggested no, no. three weeks lead-in, some have suggested six, some have suggested six months. <laughs> <laughs> and it all depends on how the games take place. I mean, we saw the shorter quarters in that opening round of the season. We've had the prospect of games being played Every night of the week, virtually, clubs playing with a, a three or a four-day turnaround, playing shorter matches, maybe playing with an expanded interchange bench or with subs, with the removal of the interchange cap, a mini draft so that players have bigger squads so that more players can play in these games that will be coming closer together. So there's all these things to consider. And of course, in the past, this weekend, we'd be, be gearing up for a big weekend, the Easter weekend, Good Friday footy. We would have Easter Monday footy, the traditional game between Geelong and Hawthorne, which has been running for the best part of the decade. Good Friday, only more recent, pioneered by North Melbourne, who'd been pushing for it for years. 
the AFL finally relented in, in recent years. We've seen the Bulldogs and Essendon line up to play North Melbourne on Good Friday and, and recently the introduction of an evening game over in the West. It hasn't quite established itself on the calendar like Anzac Day or the Queen's Birthday or Easter Monday. What do you reckon, Jen and Brent? Good Friday footy. I'm not opposed to it. I mean... I think the alternative well, is staying home and eating chocolate. So I'm yeah. for sports. And it's not something that, I mean, the NRL has been doing it for quite mm, a period yeah. of time, playing games on Good Friday. St. George, I um, love those games. I mean, I'm not really religious, so it's not something that would be in my frame of mind of the respect towards religion of whether or not it's disrespectful or it's not. It's interesting because if anything, the concern around respect has been whether it shows enough respect to the Good Friday appeal that is held down in Melbourne. And they've tried to sort of hold the game in conjunction with that, but inevitably you're taking TV airtime away from what would have been a, a telethon, uh, raising money for the, the hospital. So one thing perhaps is it would be better as a night game rather than an afternoon game. But yeah, you need good games, don't you? You need a bit of a rivalry. And, and Anzac Day, I think, was drawn the first Anzac Day game. And so these sorts of traditions and rivalries like Easter Monday with Geelong Hawthorne, they're built very much on the field and how good the game is. And they've had some classic Easter Mondays as well. I think Jimmy Bartell, his point after the, the siren, that was an Easter no, Monday. No, that was, that was, I can tell you when that was, Brent. That was round 17 of 2009. So it wasn't. Pushed a button there. It wasn't. No, no, no. That's a good one for Eddie. You might hear more about that in future weeks. On the subject of which, you've prepped something special for us, which I've been really Mm. looking forward to. You heard about Eddie's COVID-19? I've heard a sort of sneak suspicion that this may have been in the works, but I'm looking forward to seeing what he's put together. It's the COVID-19. It's the 19 players you want on your team during the pandemic. And we'll start in the back line. So our, our defenders, we've got Glenn Archer, the former North Melbourne captain, Glenn Jakovic, formerly of West Coast, Glenn Kilpatrick, who played at Geelong, and Glenn Boyer, who played at Hawthorne and Carlton. And of course, all the Glens, they'll all be wearing the number 20. Oh! <laughs> I wonder where you were going, because I was like, <laughs> when you started, when you said Glenn Boyer, I was like, oh, no. Yeah, maybe not. That's fantastic. Yeah, also in the back line, we've got Sean Wellman from Essendon, because we all want to be Wellman at the moment, and we've got John Law. <laughs> John Law, the former North Melbourne captain, he's going to be enforcing all those rules and regulations. You look in the midfield, we've got Michael Gardner, former Eagle and Saint in the Ruck. We've got the Rovers. We've got Mark Gardner, who played at university and played at Melbourne. We've got his brother, Corey Gardner, who played at Essendon and Melbourne. And their other brother, Eric Gardner, who played at Melbourne, because it's a good time to be a gardener. It is indeed. We've got the late Paul Couch, Brownlow medalist with Geelong, and his son, Tom Couch, formerly of Melbourne, because, well, it is a good time to be on the couch as well. We look in the forward line. We've got Mitch Duncan from Geelong. He'll be dunking his hands in soap and water. We've got Bradley Close from Geelong and also Michael Close, who used to play at Brisbane, but hopefully they don't get too close. Yeah. <laughs> You'll know Not this one, close. Brent. Uh, Jack Wells, who captained St Kilda back in 1907, and uh, Daniel yes. Wells, formerly of Collingwood and North Melbourne, because we all want to be Wells. Probably my favourite player in this team at centre-half forward is the West Coast Eagles premiership player, Ash Hansen, or as I like to call him, Ash hansen Natizer. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad player. Either. He's a good, good player. player. He was a good handy player, player I answered with the Eagles in the mid part of the 2000s. And on the bench, the 19th man, Blake Akers, formerly of the Saints, now with the Dockers, because that's how much space we should be keeping between us. And the team <laughs> is coached by Brett Hand, who is the head of development at GWS. And that's just a reminder to, well, to wash your hand. 
Eddie, <laughs> I love that it. is gold. The gardeners. All the gardeners. <laughs> I didn't even Michael know there was Gardner. That. What about Mark Gardner? There was a gardener. Oh, I was trying to fit Charlie Gardner in. Yeah, there. I was, was about just... to say Charlie Gardner both played for both our sides, the Saints and the did too. Cats. Yeah, what's the Charlie Gardner Cup when they meet? Well, can't have too many gardeners, can you? That was absolutely superb. <laughs> Anything else in AFL before we go to your fourth greatest sporting moment, Ed? No, I don't think I can top Ash hand sanitizer, Jim. No, I actually don't <laughs> think you can either. So, Eddie, that brings us now to your greatest sporting moment, number four in your list of five. Yeah. So I'm going to take us back, you know, all the way back to a a time before the coronavirus had really hit here in Australia. I'm taking us all the way back uh, to last month, the International Women's Day at the MCG, when 86,000 people packed in to see the final of the Women's T20 World Cup to see Australia host India. And in the end, we know Australia well and truly got on top. The Indians just didn't have their day. Alyssa Healy came out and dominated with the bat. A great innings by Beth Mooney. Uh, all the Australians bowled well, including uh, Sophie Molyneux, who Brent and I always like to keep an eye on. But that crowd, that atmosphere, right from the word go, when Katy Perry was out singing with the cricket bats, uh, right till the end <laughs> with Elise Perry having to, to watch on from the sidelines. And it had been a, a tournament of ups and downs for the Australians, that loss to India in the opening game. From then on, it was win or go home for the Aussies. They were up against it against Sri Lanka. Uh, It went down to the wire against New Zealand. That semi-final against South Africa, it nearly didn't happen because of the rain. And if it had rained even for a few more minutes, Australia would not have made the final. They were up against it with Taylor Vlamenic, their fastest bowler, out injured before the tournament. Elise Perry, their best player, arguably getting injured midway through. But they timed it right. They got the result on the day. But more than that, what a massive moment for cricket and for for women's sport in general, the MCG last month. You know, it was exactly a month ago. It seems like a lifetime. It does, doesn't it? It feels like it's been so much longer than that. It's actually. I mean, we can't have 86,000 people in a room together now. Tough question to finish, Eddie. Katy Mm. Perry, her performance with the cricket bats or with the Sharks at the Super Bowl? which was the better performance. With the cricket bats, definitely. With the cricket bats. And you know why I also have to concur with Eddie? Because there was that real touch and go as to whether any artist would come over to Australia at this point in time. She was pregnant. She'd officially announced it maybe the day or two days beforehand. And yet she still came out and did it. And I would probably guess that Katy Perry doesn't know a huge amount about cricket. But man, she felt like she did. Oh, and I think it really vindicated her decision to come and, and Cricket Australia's decision to really pursue a, a big global artist to be part of what ended up being such a massive international event. Yeah, the shape of the game in terms of support of the women's players is really remarkable. It makes me so happy. I went and saw a big bash game at Marnica Oval with the Sydney Thunder in it and there was the roving reporter going around asking some of the kids who their favourite player was and she grabbed this boy who was about 10 or something like that and said, who's your favourite player? And he said, Alyssa Healy. thought it was one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And it wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. It wouldn't have even happened probably 10 years ago. It just goes to show the rate of growth of women's cricket. Well, that's exactly right. I feel like Lisa Stalaker and those sort of players just really are unfortunate that they're such fantastic players, but they've sort of come at a time before women's cricket has really found its feet and is what it is at the moment. The same for the AFL. I think we're very, very close to some of these kids all of a sudden choosing some of the women's AFL players as well. And as we spoke last week about just the shame that that season didn't quite get to finish as it should have done. But 
it's certainly going places and those two sports in particular are changing the face of the game. Yeah, and I had the opening game of the AFLW history and also the, the last year's AFLW grand final at Adelaide over with a full house. They were on the, the short list or the long list, I suppose, for the top four, but just didn't quite make it. Oh, that's brilliant. I've loved that moment. Eddie, thank you so much for your time this week. Coronavirus 19 and the top four moment. I cannot wait to find out what your number one is. I have a sneaking suspicion you might have some more idea on what Ed's number one might be, Brent. Ooh. I don't think you will, Jen. I don't, oh. but... I feel like I know one of the top four, but you just never know. Yeah, okay. Eddie, thank you so much for your time this week. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Brent. Resporting. We'll be back in just a moment to talk some cricket with Letsy. Resporting, and we brought Letsy back in because it's been a surprisingly huge week in cricket. First of all, Letsy, hello. How are you? Hello. How are you both? We are good, very, good. very well and keeping a appropriate social distance from each other. <laughs> Brent and I were talking beforehand about how everybody's come out with their new theories of how sports are going to evolve. And Brent put it beautifully and said, people are talking into the fridge, which I really like. <laughs> and it's been a bit of that. I've seen so many sporting personalities, cricketing personalities get up and add their two cents worth. But at this point in time, we still have a cricketing World Cup. Yeah, we're still maybe going to have a cricket World Cup, depending on how things turn out. They're going through quite a few different options on how it might go ahead and it looks like a bit of a logistical nightmare if the travel restrictions are still in place. They've been getting medical advice on how how do you get four, five hundred players here from like 15 different countries and how do you do that safely without endangering the community as well. It's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out but the thing is the reason they want to get it on the exact dates and around the exact time as well because they've already booked all the venues and hotels everything's all booked. So mm. money's probably been spent. Interesting uh, retirement announcement this week. Steve O'Keefe said he's going to retire from cricket, which is bizarre considering he's just had a fantastic Sheffield Shield season. But he's one of those players because of a couple of off-field moments, just never quite lived up to perhaps the expectations he should have done. Yeah, it's a bit disappointing in my view, but Cricket NSW on the weekend it was announced that he wasn't on their contract list for next season, which is pretty disappointing given he was the top wicket taker when it comes to spinners from the last Shield season, which is made even bigger because he only played five matches of the Shield season as well. He was a yeah, top wicket taker, very good average from only like five matches, which is pretty amazing. He's always been one of my favourites in the Big Bash because he could bat or bowl and he always had this habit of if the sixes were in trouble, he would like come on and he'd hit a couple of sixes and it would just be so... It's not exactly what he's known for. He's known as being the sort of specialist spinner. But, I mean, he's sort of been vocal in, in recent time, I think, of preparing pitches for the, the subcontinent. He wants bowlers to be more or have pitches, I suppose, sort of tailored for them. Yeah, well, he has come out and said that. He wants to achieve what Justin Langer apparently calls the Everest, which is winning a series in India. And he's got a couple of ideas with a Dukes ball. So we brought in the Dukes ball for the second half of the last couple of Sheffield Shield season. And given we don't have an Ashes tour over in the UK for a few years now, our next probably main task is probably getting as good as we possibly can against spin in similar conditions to the subcontinent. 
what makes India such a different proposition to playing, say, in England or playing in Abu Dhabi, for example? I think it's mainly one of the reasons is because the pitches are quite a bit different the way they prepare them, apparently. And they seem to, at least in my view, they seem to dry out a little bit more, a bit quicker, which means spin plays a more active role earlier in the test match. And because we have such flat wickets over in Australia, flat sort of pace wickets, often we don't get that experience at facing spin in test matches, like good spin bowling that's going to affect the batsman a fair bit. So that's probably one of the reasons why in India we struggle a bit. And on top of that, India are just very, very good team, to be honest. Well, and they're well, suited to their climate. I suppose that's the home advantage that all of us get to have. And when you get to win one of those series over in, in the subcontinent, West Indies in their day, I mean, remember... 20 years ago, winning a series in the West Indies was considered impossible. Anyway, times have changed since then. Actually, I just mentioned that. And isn't it amazing to think it's been 20 years now since the Hansi Kronje affair? Yeah, it's been a very long time. Now, I don't actually remember it happening because I was only very young. I would have been about three years old when it all took place. I forget how young you two were. Hansi Kronje was part of my growing up and he was one of those players. I'm trying to think of who I would compare him to as an equivalent he was like Alistair Cook he was so straight down the line Mm. so almost nerdy in his cricket authenticness (laughs) that when it came out that he'd done this it was the least likely player do you know what I mean how were people reacting to it all were people believing the fact that it had happened or were people no not initially no he wouldn't have done that my memory is he came out pretty early and said that he'd done it. Like there wasn't a long lag period between the initial allegations and him saying that he'd done it, but it was just such an unlikely person to have done it. He was really serious on but the field. Almost, almost in a way, that's the perfect person to, to do something in terms of this sort of thing of knowing that you have to say if it's a bowler for example you have to bowl a wide during the over i mean something like that that Mm. may seem i guess uh, accidental could be something that's so easily done throughout the world and no one would have a clue no one would be able to say that that person has bowled that on purpose and Mm. i think someone who's so meticulous like hansi cronje would be probably the perfect person to, to target because they're probably going to pull it out and be meticulous but in this occasion it didn't really pan out the way he was hoping no this was all the more reason why the sandpaper gate affected me so much because i have very strong feelings nate knows my feelings on it but i just felt like that steve smith responsibility was the least in it and yet he got such a i think the aspect of it all is that he's the leader and knowing that he had an option I reckon, to step in and say, we shouldn't be doing this. And I think it takes a lot of courage for someone to actually come out and and say that you should have been the one, Steve, that said, no, this is not right. We can do it without this. Mm. And the fact that he didn't, I don't think we'll ever find out the exact what was going on in the the players' minds and you could have all the the money thrown at them for their their tell-all story. There's going to be aspects of it, I think, that will always be left out. But... I think the most disappointing thing for me, I don't think they should have copped a year. I think when you look at the other aspects of cricket 
maybe these tactics become part of the game post-COVID and maybe that's something that'll make cricket more exciting is maybe that's the way we win on the subcontinent. <laughs> bit of stuck minty wrapper. <laughs> what else is happening in cricket at the moment? We got a little bit deeply invested in cricket emotions gone by there. Just quickly on Steve Smith, it's also because, as you say, like a lot of emphasis is put on the captain of a cricket team in comparison to other sports. Look at your rugby league captains, your AFL captains. Less weight is probably on their shoulders in comparison to a cricket team and because it's a national yeah. team as well. And Stephen Smith, it happened on his watch, which is sort of why I think Cricket Australia were as harsh with the punishment as they were. Well, I remember they used to, I think it was a saying, I may have got this wrong, but the cricketing captain of Australia, the test captain was like higher in office than the, the prime minister. Like he's just literally below the the governor general in terms of like importance mm. especially mm. during the summer it's kind of crazy some of the the really random stuff that's going on at the moment i think i saw somewhere that one of joss butler's t-shirts went for an absurd amount of money believe it or not sixty-five thousand one hundred pounds but which is pretty insane. Who has that money right He's now? Fine. I know. Boris just opened the checkbook. It's like he can't. For the country. It's for the country. I might be in intensive care, but I'm going <laughs> to bid on this auction. I'm going to wear Joss's shirt. <laughs> I'm going to wear must it right here. this together. <laughs> but it does make you wonder, as you say, would it have gone for more at a different time when people... They got jobs and the the economy's going all right. Would it have gone for more? Nah. But, uh, what's the significance of it? Was he raising money for a charity or was he? Yeah, like, all the is... all the money was going to hosp- the hospitals in well, London. Maybe it was Boris who bought it then. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like, I still think sixty five thousand pounds is a huge amount for. That's nearly for sure. like a hundred. I know that's crazy. Dollars in the odds. That's just absurd. Yeah, well, it was his World Cup winning shirt from last year, so oh, yeah, he, uh, apparently he kept in the shirt as well. <laughs> that was a lot of controversy. Oh, I was going to say, it was very don't get me started on that. All right, Betsy, sporting moments, number four. Look, I reckon you're going to be able to guess this one. France, 2011. France, 2011. Rugby, rugby World Cup. No. Cadell Evans. Oh! How did we miss? Cadell. Oh, how did I forget see, about this Cadell? Is, this is the beauty. Oh, I got goosebumps. This is the beauty of it all. Every time I see a cyclist on the road in, in full lycra, I actually, and I still do this to this day, yeah. it's actually something that friends go, you can't, you can't keep doing it. <laughs> so the cyclist <laughs> is riding along the road or whatever. I wind the window down and I just start yelling out, go Cadell, go Cadell. <laughs> no word of a lie, this is... I do it every cyclist I go past. Whether they have to be in lycra though, if they're not in lycra, you've got to be very strategic with it as well. Even when they're stopped at lights, there used to be they'd sometimes clip themselves in and they'd lean on the car, and I'd be like, "Easy going, Cadell." <laughs> and they go, "Well, that's Cadell." It's like well, it is now. Tell us the story of Cadell for you. For cycling, obviously, you've got to be strong. And with this race, there's 21 stages, right? So you've got to be day after day, day after day. You've got to just keep going, keep running through. Got to be as strong and mentally strong and physically strong as you possibly can. So when he took that lead in the time trial, the second last stage of the race, when he took the overall race lead, it was just like, wow, is this really happening? Especially because 
in previous years, he had gotten so close, but mm. he just didn't quite get the win. He was even leading the previous year and he hurt his elbow, unfortunately. That's history right. is history. Oh, he won. Oh, that's right. He did mm. the massive stack. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, did the massive stack and had to retire. And yeah, he just gets the win here. I don't know. It's It's hard to put into words because it was just... Well, it it was something that I never thought we'd win. You know what I mean? When you get so close, it was one of those things that in so many sports, we've just never been able to get to that final hurdle, final moment where he got to celebrate. So it was all the more remarkable because it's just, it seems so unlikely. Yeah, exactly right. And I think also the thing was like, because he had gotten so close in previous years it was just really amazing to see him actually get the win and when he got back to australia he he really got a what would you call it more like a rock star style reception as he should what's he doing now like this man should be out somewhere in front and center in our public life but he seems to just quietly that's what cadell was like he was definitely was never never one of those people that was like when he was in the spotlight he he really craved it. He sort of just rode the bike and was really, really good at, at riding in these races. But this has actually really got me thinking again because I'd completely forgotten that Cadell Evans had even won the Tour de France. Yeah. I know, and, and it's not that long ago, and that's why it's really... And when you just said to us, oh, you're going to know what we're going to do, we're going to go to France, and we were both like, oh... Is it going to be rugby union? Is it going to be World yeah. Cup soccer? And we didn't even think of Cadell. Isn't that amazing? Because at the time we were all so engrossed in it. And that's exactly right. And I'm just reading an article now that talking about the Tour de France because obviously France has been one of those countries that's mm. hard hit and they're actually looking at postponing by four weeks. And so to finish in mid-August, and I think everyone is a bit guilty at some point in winter here in Australia for sitting up late at night watching SBS and the coverage of the, <laughs> the Tour de France. But So it could finish in, in mid-August as part of Plan B. It hasn't been cancelled, so that's probably a positive. Isn't look. it normally a precursor to the Olympics when it's Olympic year as well? So you'd have it in August and then some of them would go and compete in the Olympics? Yeah, yeah. So the Quite a lot of them do. Chris Froome. Yeah, that's right. So they'd have that massive event and then some of them would head off to the Olympics, which now, of course, would be what next? They're saying next September? Oh, next year. So how do you plan for uh, it? I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, I love that moment. Yeah. I had forgotten. And that last stage, which is like the not a real stage, but a glory stage for whoever's won when he was riding through the streets yeah. and he was crying. And that, for me, is a really powerful sporting moment. Oh, I just Absolutely. something about the Tour de France as well. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I don't like in sport, it's like the handshake agreement. Mm. So mm. the last stage of the Tour de France when they're, say, you're 10 seconds behind or whatever, you're in second place and you've mm. got to accept that's happened. I'd like to see mm. someone one year, maybe <laughs> in the, if it happens this year. But see, so that'd be the bad the, thing. That'd be what would have happened to Cadell. The leaders <laughs> sipping on champagne and... He just flies by you on the cobblestones and takes the yellow jersey and rips it off your back. Oh, was, and heartbreaking. On that, yeah, it would, yeah, but I love that moment. So let's see, I can't wait to hear three, two and one for you. So we've gone a bit of cricket, bit of cycling. So we'll wait to see where you're heading next week. Thanks for catching up with us this week. Thanks, Steve. Have a good one. Resporting. 
my favorite bit of the episode. And <laughs> this is like the, for me, it's like the touchy-feely bit of sports when you haven't got any sports. So we're talking about our favorite sporting moments of all time, and I'm going to go first this time. So I'm going to take you back to 2013. Yep. End of the year. Ashes. Ooh. Australia. <gasps> I think I know. Mitchell Johnson. Oh, I was not thinking Mitchell Johnson, but... Oh my God, no, Mitchell Johnson. This is such a big moment for me because he went into that Ashes team. He was chosen as our sort of frontline bowler. We had Ryan Harris and Siddle and stuff, and he was considered the weak link. And the English team, hindsight, the English team were sitting there going, yee-haw, they've chosen Mitchell Johnson because he'd had all these emotional breakdowns more than anything else where he'd bowl really well and then lose his confidence. Yep. And so, I mean, obviously it was a five-test series and there were so many standouts in that whole series, but I wanted to start with the first test at the Gabba at the end of November where... Johnson came from nowhere and it actually started not with his bowling it started with his batting the first day at the Gabba we went just after lunch we were six for 132 right yeah and I think the English had won the Ashes in England prior to this so nothing was looking very good and then Haddon and Johnson came together at the crease ah yes Johnson ended up scoring 64 and hadn't got run out really comically for 94, but that's by the by. I hadn't had the most <laughs> amazing series as well. And I feel like that 64, which again, Johnson's, you know, he's, he's a good hack. He of, can, yeah, he just swings the wood at it. Exactly right. But the 64, I felt like that was the thing when he went into batting, he was taking that confidence and he was that kind of a guy. Yeah. And then in that first innings, like, do you remember that this was the one where there were two retirements? There was Trot and Swan who... Yeah. Johnson just totally got under the skin of. Yeah, he did. And and then I think Trot ended up going home. After the first test. Yeah. With stress-related illness, which I don't want to make light of in any way, shape or form. No. But it was just the Johnson impact in that match was so extraordinary. And then he was batting and bowling. I remembered watching him and my father-in-law is English, right? And he yeah. he was staying with us at the time and he was giving us so much curry about how much we were going to get annihilated. And I remember watching that first test and I'd have to like leave the room because I was so overwhelmed with happiness. (laughs) (laughs) And I so wanted to be really nasty. But Johnson, honest to God, he looked like a machine. Every time he bowled, he looked terrifying. And there was even, he, do you remember? This is with the Mo, isn't it? This is when he had, yeah, he started the the, the Mo and started doing that. And he even like enacted these extraordinary run outs. It was also the one where Carberry got his bat broken. Do you remember that? Yes, Johnson bowled the ball and and snapped snapped the the bat. And so there was so many like great moments across the test. And there was another one where Johnson, he didn't get a hat trick, but he got three wickets across the over. Yeah. Not in three balls. So I went in with limited expectations. I got to the end of that first test match and the mood of that Ashes series, and you know how we were talking with Letsy beforehand about your captain being prime minister. Yeah. That Ashes series carried my mood for six months, I reckon. I remember because I was working in a tab and over the summer it obviously gets a little bit quieter because the the spring carnival's sort of finished and that's the end of it but yeah i just remember 
I mean, the one thing about that Ashes series is I think we won it 5 0. Yeah. And it all started from that Brisbane test where I think it starts with the, the batting of Haddon and, and Johnson and their ability to, to rescue Australia because it wasn't looking pretty. No. And then from there, I just remember Mitchell Johnson was so imposing with his moustache. It was like a throwback to the the 80s and the heyday of, of Australian cricket with Dennis Lilly coming down and, and the likes with the stash in, in full flight. And he did that for Movember and it was it was kind of strange. It was almost like he had something to hide behind. Yeah, it was yeah. like Samson hair. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was the thing that was... Everything about him exuded confidence and it yeah. was something that I'd never seen in him. And for the rest of his international career, he was like a different man from that Ashes series. And yeah. so that was a benchmark. And I have one further story before we get to yours. Yeah. He came to Canberra and he came to Belcon and one of the Belcon and bookstores with his book after this, or yeah. the Ashes series. And I took my son Jacob to meet Mitchell Johnson and get the book signed. And I'm going to be really honest... I might have shoved Jake out of the pictures, <laughs> but I'll just leave it. You know that. what? I can actually see that happening too. <laughs> that, that's the thing that I can actually picture this. I don't even need to, I don't even need any more context yep. to the story. I can see Jacob going, oh, hi, Mitchell. And then bang, <laughs> you've just come out and just taken him out with a shoulder charge. Pretty much accurate. Yep. Oh. So it was a big deal for me. I think really highly of him and that whole test series means a huge amount. Oh, Okay. Well, my fourth sporting moment, I'm taking us June 2006. We're going to Germany. I know where we're going. Oh, oh my God, I've got goosebumps already. We're going to Kaiserslautern. Oh. And probably, I think it was a, well, it was a moment spread across probably about 10 frantic minutes that had Australians just absolutely jumping out of their, their lounge chairs. It's, of course, Tim Cahill. Yeah. scoring Australia's first ever World Cup goal. And, I mean, already had this massive reputation, but, I mean, he was almost not in this squad. And I remember he started the game off the bench. Gus Hiddink had started him off the bench. He was recovering from knee ligament damage. It threatened to rule him out of this entire World Cup. He came on after 53 minutes. He actually... Uh, replaced Marco Bresciano, but the controversy prior to the match, and it was such an it was such an Australian thing, in the fact that Shinzuki Nakamura actually scored the the opening goal in this game, but it was the fact that Mark Schwarzer had argued that he'd been taken out, and it was just we'd been so unlucky for so long a run and and what had happened there, but this golden generation, it was like we weren't going to be denied, we were actually going to show what we were all about and. I go to this 84th minute and the throw in, it just comes in from, you know, an absolute nothing. And it's mm. the fact that Lucas Neal throws it so deep and it's just this scramble. And of all the people to get a foot to it, Tim Cahill just sends it straight into the net. And I just remember just being 12 or 13 at the time and just throwing everything in the air I, I think I woke everyone up in the, in the house and mum and dad weren't too happy I was only in year seven at the time and they weren't all that happy but I think they once they sort of realized the situation of what was going on they were then captured in in this moment and then it was just what had happened after that it just went absolutely ridiculous and the fact that then he was able to score that goal from 
I guess outside the box on his on his wrong footer hit the bar and you just couldn't believe what was going on it was almost like it was too perfect a moment and then of course uh, we scored the third goal and we were all just like we are world beaters for all the pain of of Australian football that has has happened along the way this is the sort of moment that really is the the vindication for all those that came before this group of Socceroos I know we'd made a World Cup previously but to actually win a game in a World Cup when it's not really our it's at the grassroots level it's played quite heavily but it's not the national sport like it is in in nations like Brazil and and Spain where they they play it so openly so for us this little nation of of 20 odd million people that's on the world stage we beat Japan who we'd had such a strong rivalry with in in Asia since moving there from Oceania and and what had happened there Gus Hiddink of course such a likable character it was kind of crazy that that was the the birth and I still think back in the way that it all ended in that World Cup of course Francesco Totti oh I can't talk about it yeah it it hurts and to think that that's the way it it ended it's sort of you go from this incredible high and to think Italy won that World Cup yeah Italy won that World Cup and we were right there with them and we were right there with them I know we were in that game every second and that moment which forever will be contentious to any Australian ever yeah it's just I think in that moment I always find it funny when sport is played overseas and you have to watch it here in Australia at night. I look at the the EPL as a, a prime example of all these Australians sitting. Some go to, to bars when, when you could go to a bar and, and watch sport. They sit in the, the bar with people who love that team as well. And it's this crazy concept to think all these people across Australia were sitting in their lounge chairs or in their bed and and Tim scores this goal and then he scores another one and people would be jumping around. It's two, three o'clock in the morning Mm. and people are jumping and that's the sort of power that sport has. I remember it so vividly because the Aloisi moment, which I don't know if I'm going to guess isn't in your top five, based on having this moment here. It made the shortlist, oh, but it was incredibly hard, incredibly hard to cut. One, for the the fact that I can remember we were behind in that penalty mm. shootout, and Schwarzer makes two. God, Schwarzer was our best ever goalkeeper. Will we ever find another Schwarzer? But anyway, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that he had the, the two saves, and mm. it was just so perfect. And his I mean, face. His I mean, oh. just the fact that, so much went wrong in that penalty shootout as well. I think Mark Viduka missed a, a penalty that on his day he'd normally just do it with his eyes closed. But that's the pressure of this mm. moment that you train for something your whole life and you're, you're ready for this. And at the moment, it's will you make it count? And I think of that diving save of Schwartz's with his arms outstretched and he gets it with his left mid and you just think, oh, can he just... And Craig Foster so emotional as well. In <laughs> Aloisi! And it's just, it's just, yes! Oh my God. You little beauty! And there's another moment that makes me think of, but I had just found out I was pregnant. Oh. And so yep. it was, I remembered that whole thing at the time of the being hormonally emotional. Yeah. I was living away from home, setting up a store for wherever I was working at the time. So I watched that by myself. 
And it was actually a really cool moment to watch by myself because I was able to just get really emotional about it. And then Jacob was born by the time we lost to Italy. Oh. And I was up in the middle of the night and I really needed sleep, but I couldn't sleep because, of course, who could go to sleep when we were playing Italy at that? Yeah. That was like a, not a semi, but we'd made it to the next Yeah, so it was sort of level, like, yeah, I think it's like the, the round of 16 or, or 32. Which yeah. was remarkable for us. And yeah, when we lost that game, I just, I was so gutted. But then, yeah, in the, was it the last World Cup or the one beforehand when Iceland came from nowhere yeah, and qualified through and, the, and the commentator, with the Viking clap oh so good and I mean means something to us particularly but the commentator for Iceland did the John Aloisi where he was like oh no! and, and the, it just went forever yeah and this is the the amazing thing as well about football being played in so many different countries is the the joy that is is spread across when these commentators express their emotion in different languages as well. I love the the Spanish commentators or the Brazilian commentators that are like golazo, <laughs> and then they're just go go go. And you don't need to know what they're saying exactly. You just yeah. you just get it. I was living in England when we played a friendly. Australia played a a friendly over in the UK against the English team and we won that game. Yes. And we were at a pub and we were the only Australians in the pub and we were getting, as the game wore on, and this was the David Beckham, this was like the mighty English team or the celebrated one at the time. Yeah. And for us to win that game was monumental and all the English were like, oh, it's just a friendly, but... Yeah, it's never never just just a a friendly. It's never just a friendly. You want to win the friendlies. Yes. So that was a really great soccer moment for me as well god i love it that was great to revisit that japan win that was so spectacular and tim cahill just our greatest player i would say that he would be he's definitely our most prolific scorer yeah i mean it's hard i I loved kill i got to see a lot of kill in the uk as well watching him for see bazooka people forget what he did for leeds when they were Yep. sort of at the peak of the powers and they're I hate to say it they're on the verge of coming back to the EPL and this coronavirus could really put a dampener on on Leeds coming back into the the top flight of English football which after I think it's a 15 or 16 year hiatus would be such a great thing I mean a lot of Australians love Leeds for the aspect of it having two of our best ever socceroos as as part of its fabric of the club it's kind of crazy to think that this virus could actually halt their hopes of of pushing back into the top flight yeah it'd be a shame how do we go from here we can only go up yes the the top three the top three oh can't wait you've been listening to re-sporting we're keeping sports alive when there's not a lot to watch but we're going to provide the entertainment we'll catch you again next week